Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When, when Morpheus offers Neo the red or the blue pill and tells him that he's only offering the truth, is it's, it's life-changing, right? And that's my desire. My desire is to be the Morpheus of everybody that wants to exit the Matrix. Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Real Estate Lab podcast. In this lab, we decode the stories, secrets, and skills of the most brilliant minds in real estate investing, then turn their wisdom into practical advice and knowledge that we can use to boost our income. And now, let's turn it over to our host, V. It's a great day to be alive and to invest in real estate. My name is Viku, and you're now listening to my show, The Real Estate Lab Podcast. Hey, how are you doing, my friends? Today, we are going to talk about another angle within the multifamily investing world, and that is to buy apartment building using JV as opposed to the syndication model. My guest today Jerome Myers leads the Myers Development Group's LLC, which focuses on buying broken apartment building businesses and using innovative thinking and solid execution strategies to optimize the operation efficiency of that business. Currently, Jerome is the asset manager of about 90 units and about 90,000 square feet of workforce housing across Virginia and North Carolina. He's on a mission to hold about a thousand doors by the end of 2028. When he's not actively working on his personal portfolio, he coaches other real estate investors on the Myers method of multifamily investing. Outside of real estate, Jerome hosts the Dream Catchers and Myers method present multifamily missteps podcast. He also volunteers on STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math boards, and enjoys traveling internationally. Before jumping into today's show, I want to remind you of a giveaway that I'm doing. I am giving away Michael Hyatt's Freedom to Focus book. What you need to do to get this is really easy. Go to iTunes, hit the subscribe button, leave a review, and um, a five-star rating. If you want to take a screenshot of that and send me the address, I will pick 10 people to... Uh, send a book too. All right, that's all I have. Let's jump into today's episode. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Lab Podcast. My name is Viku. I'm your host, and I have Jerome Myers with me today. Welcome to the show. V, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate you guys reaching out via LinkedIn. Hey, man, I really appreciate you. I, I see you appear on so many podcasts, and, and it's great to finally get you on the show. Um, let me start with this. Let's say we're buddy in high school, hanging out at lunch. What would we be talking about? Uh, probably football. I was, uh, I was a football player through college, and, and the majority of my friends were my teammates. And so we were probably talking about practice or weightlifting or, you know, one of those things. What position did you play? In high school, I was a free safety. Uh, it was pretty cool and then I got I tore my ACL in my last football game in high school during the playoffs and never really recovered and so college I ended up playing linebacker okay okay I actually so I I live in Denver and um, I met a guy through one of the investing clubs who was a teammate of Rod Smith played for the Denver Broncos played for 
in your same position, free safety, um, play against Rod, and, and he was not that good. So he never made it to the pro. But then, <laughs> but through him, I got to to meet Rod. That was that was pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome right there. Now, I understand that you're um, son of a soldier who wanted to be a fighter jet pilot, but was not able to because you were too tall. Um, talk me to talk to me about the, your life during that time. You know, what made you want to become a civil engineer instead of a psychologist? Yeah, so you're right. I, I did want to be a fighter pilot. We live pretty close to the Army base. My dad was a non-commissioned officer in the Army. And prior to that, he was a Marine. And we would, I would see the fighter jets flying over our house, you know, basically daily. And I just thought it was so cool and freeing to be able to do something like that. Uh, I'm a little too big for flying a fighter jet. And uh, in hindsight, it probably wouldn't have been the best thing for me because, you know, the military wasn't really my cup of tea. Uh, I didn't even know what an engineer was until... I think I did some type of job shadowing in like my junior year of high school because I was in this technology program. Mm -hmm. And all I knew that I liked solving problems and it didn't matter if it was people problems or uh, the problems of engineering or, you know, math or science. But, you know, what I truly in the end, I decided and it came back to a conversation I had with my mom when we were playing in the front yard one day and I told her I wanted to be a garbage man. The guy Ronnie. Uh, he was our garbage man and he lived on the other end of the cul-de-sac from us. And he was home every day around two or three o'clock. And, you know, I, I had Tonka toys and all of that stuff. And he would get a, he had a real life Tonka toy. He would get on the uh, back of the truck and pull the lever. It would come down, crush everything. And, you know, that was just fascinating for me. My mom told me, hey, baby, you, you, you're not going to be able to get Nikes and nice clothes and all the things that you like if you have that type of salary. So you need to get a job that's gonna pay you well. And so when I started looking at starting salaries for psychologists versus engineers, it was kind of a no brainer which way I was gonna go. Well, I mean, I, I would say there are some still really high paid psychologists out there if you're in the, doing the right thing in, in business. Uh, not Maybe not if you're working in, in a hospital, but if you have your own practice, you know, you could make a lot of money still. But that, that's the, that's the job, right? But so you actually had a, a really good high six figure job in your W two days. You built a new division for someone else, and you made it a success. But it was for someone else's dream, not yours. So then they lay you off, which allow you to jumpstart your real estate career. How did you convince your family, especially your loved one, to let you go down in this path? I didn't try to convince anybody. I made the decision. Um, I just didn't have the stomach for it. I dropped out of corporate America. It's just like, if this is what this type of compensation requires of a person, then this isn't what I want to do and this isn't who I'm going to be. And so I made that transition. But yeah, you're right. We we built a $20 million business over the course of a year. Uh, went from I was employee number two we were up to about 150 employees, 175, depending on the day. And, you know, we were really profitable, about 30% profit margins on $20 million of revenue. So so you didn't have to convince anyone. You just says, hey, I have enough money to, to go down this path. I just decided that this is what I'm going to do. So you have one year of expenses saved up, right? 
Yeah, I did have one year of expenses saved up. But via, I'll tell you, man, as a as a man, as a leader, you know, that decision really resides with me. I I lost that concept of asking other people for permission to do what I'm going to do um, mm-hmm. back in 2010 or so. I went through a really dark period and started questioning, challenging and everything. And one of the things that was questioned and challenged at a very deep level was this whole concept of people pleasing and asking for permission. It's up to me to create the path that I'm going to go down. And so I'm not going to do anything irresponsible or, you know, not loving. And so if I move in that space continuously, I don't need to check with other people in order to take action on the things that are placed on my heart. So you said that was in 2010. Was that around, um, when When did you actually um, write the book, Politics of Marriage? So that started in 2010 and was published in 2012. Was it because of the what you went through that you want to put it down in, in that book? I think part of it was I was getting feedback that I wasn't a great husband. Um, and I when I looked around and started talking to friends and started watching movies and started taking survey, it was like everybody that I was dealing with was having the exact same issues. They were getting the same feedback. And it was like, why do I need to read five, 10, or even 15 books to get these answers? And so we took the parable of a, we made a parable, a guy named Mike, and mm-hmm. we took him through different political offices and to get him to the highest office of the land, which was being president. And we weaved in um, kind of the sage wisdom for all of the different, I guess, thought leaders related mm-hmm. to marriage. And the goal was just to help people. You know, we were, really wanted it to be a field manual on things that you should and shouldn't do as you're moving to the place where you're committing to somebody for um, marriage. And, you know, there's a huge difference between being a boyfriend or being a fiance and being a husband. And it was um, imperative for me to try to help people not go through the same challenges that I have. Right. Part of the reason why I, I asked those those two questions um, like that was because you had a really high income job. And then all of a sudden you just t- t- tell everyone, tell everyone that I'm going to go do real estate because I, I know this is it's work because um, I understood that you loan money out. Right. Um, as a hard money lender. And that was your way into real estate. Correct. Then, uh, some sometimes you you have to be responsible for your family, and that's why I wanted to see you know how did you come up with this this concept of the book, and what did you do at that time to kind of talk to everyone around you? Yeah, I think you know to further expound on that point, I think as men, many of us think, hey, we'll just be okay. It doesn't matter what we're going through as long as everybody else is okay, we'll be okay. And that's not true. Uh, we always we tend to put ourselves back, and I think a lot of women get the credit for putting everybody in front of them, and so on and so forth. But you know, I remember a point in my life where I thought I would never enjoy my success, and it was during that self reflection and recreation period that I went through that I realized, hey, life isn't all about everybody else, and there's a reason why when you're on an airplane, people tell you, hey, you need to put on your mask first. Right. You you can't take care of other people. You can't love other people. You can't pour into other people if you're not taken care of. And what I can tell you was that laying folks off was one of the most traumatic experiences that I've ever had in my life. 
I mean, at one point, um, somebody that got laid off committed suicide. And oh, wow. I joke from time to time about, you know, how I helped kill a person. But the reality of the situation is like, you never know what the straw will be that breaks the camel's back. And mm -hmm. so because I was forced to make those decisions and not I had to make those decisions, like there's there's something that at a deeper level, um, it wasn't something that I was willing to be put in that situation anymore is probably the best way I can describe that. How many people did you have to uh, let go? We lost the first go around was about 75 folks. Wow. And then the second round was uh, yourself included? Uh, so there were other opportunities for me in the marketplace. And I decided that I just didn't want to participate anymore. But yeah, the balance of the folks left at that point. Got it. Got it. Now let's let's transition over to real estate. I, I would say that about 90% of the people out there doing apartment deals started with some forms of uh, mentorship or partnership. And I learned that you actually started by consuming 40 hours of content to learn the industry. What 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 would you say was missing in YouTube and podcast university when you got started? I think the biggest thing is just everybody doesn't agree, right? And so <laughs> from all of the different thought leaders and they have a different opinion about a subject. For instance, I mean, right now people have different opinions on what's going to happen with COVID. Um, right. You know, it, you don't know which one to believe because you don't have any experience to balance it against. And so for me, the struggle is, you know, cohesive foundational knowledge. Um, I spent most days confused and frustrated, or there were other days where I was overconfident because I thought I understood and knew and I didn't. Now, for you that's listening, Jerome has a podcast called Myers Methods Present Multifamily Misstep Podcast. You can check it out on iTunes, Spotify, or other popular channels that you consume your content. Now, let's get back to um, what we do as content creators. How do um, how do we do a better job at filling that hole uh, that's missing? How can we do a better job to provide the audience something that's that's kind of it's a better product than what you were consuming back then? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you get that with free content, right? I mean, you're a network engineer. I'm a civil engineer by training. I don't think anybody gets into business uh, for free. And so the the idea that you don't need to make any investment in education to do this business is kind of naive. Um, do I think you have to buy a used Mercedes or BMW in order to figure out if you want to be in a space? I don't. I, I don't agree with the thirty, forty, and fifty thousand um, dollar mentorship programs that are out there. I I don't think that's necessary for people to get into the deal, especially. When, you know, the, the backside promise of that is, hey, you're going to go kill Moby Dick on your first deal. You're going to kill a 100 unit or 150 unit deal, 10 million plus. You're going to get this huge acquisition fee that pays it all back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I just don't see many people having success going that path. I We've offered a different alternative. And with Myers Methods, mm -hmm. the goal is to, hey, go take down something that's half a million to 1.5 million partner with family, friends, and somebody from our community that has experience 
And by going through that, you get some momentum, right? The law of the first deal is a real thing from our perspective. And so with that said, you know, we want you to get your first deal. You can point to owning something that you get the experience box checked by the bank by signing a loan. And then you can go off and you can talk to brokers and you can talk to other people that are investors to build up your ability to raise capital. And I think that's a whole lot more reasonable. Now, with that said, I mean, some of these ecosystems give people the opportunity to raise millions and millions of dollars because the folks are already in there. But what I don't know, because I haven't been through the process, is what happens to the equity on the back end? You know, how how much equity do they actually get to retain in that general partnership? And do they end up being marginalized? I, I pick all the time and say, hey, man, give me 30 grand and then you can go raise money for my deal. And that's what I think a lot of these uh, mentorship programs kind of boil down to. And it's okay if that's what somebody wants to do. But, uh, you know, foundationally, I think there's four challenges that every investor is working through. And it just depends on where they are. Knowledge, uh, deal flow, experience, and capital. And I think you have to solve for each one of those problems in that order, right? If you don't have any knowledge, you can't analyze a deal. So foundationally, you need to know what it takes to analyze a deal, what a market looks like, what a reasonable property looks like. After that, you know, you need to go work on your deal flow because now you can apply that knowledge against the deal flow. You follow up the deal flow. Once you actually find a deal, right? And I probably shouldn't say deal flow. I should say lead flow. Leads and deals are not the same thing. And so once you actually find a deal, then you need experience so that you can buy that. Uh, The bank's not going to partner with you if you don't have the experience. And, you know, smart money's not going to come into a deal with you because they think you're going to lose it. Nobody wants you to learn with their money. Correct. And then the final piece, you know, after your track experience through your deal is bringing the capital in. And, you know, fact of the matter, experience and capital are looking for deals. Everybody that has experience is looking for something else to buy. Um, and so if you can find the deal, then you need to attract the capital. Um, people. I mean, you want to attract the experience. People think that once you find the deal, the capital will show up. That's not true. Uh, Once you find the deal, you need to find experience. And then once experience shows up, capital will follow. So each piece that you talk about is almost like one person in your team. If you don't have that skill set, you should bring in someone to fill that void for you. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, if you're going to be a lead, And not everybody wants to be a lead, right? A lot of people just want to put their money in deals and let it bake. But for those folks who are going to be a lead, you need to know how to do all of them. And so that was the kind of the rub for me, right? Like Mm -hmm. there are podcasts focused on raising money. There are podcasts focused on um, analyzing deals at some levels. I think Dan Hanford's probably got one of the best ones out there. Um, And then, you know, from an experience standpoint, you know, people just come on and share their stories. But it's it's well polished, it's groomed, and you know they're just trying to direct you to something else. And so that's where multifamily missteps comes in. The goal of that is to give people a peek behind the curtain and have real stories from real operators and get the get the real story. I think a lot of people miss the fact that you're running a business when you buy an apartment building, and because you're running a business, there's going to be some stuff that goes wrong. And you have to be agile and nimble and be able to adjust to whatever situations come up. Uh, money isn't going to solve all the issues. They never, it never does. And so being creative and thoughtful 
is a big part of the process. Money just kind of makes it a little bit easier and less painful. Yep, yep, definitely. And I just want to piggyback on what you said earlier. Um, lead flows and and deal flows are different. Can you tell me from the time you quit your job and in your calculation, how quickly did you think that you would have had this whole thing set up where you could have lead flow coming in and close your first deal? So I was looking at deals before I left um, and I spent about a month checking out deals. And I mean, <laughs> I, I didn't know what I was doing. Right. And I thought I found a deal that we ended up closing on. But, you know, I was trying to buy the deal by myself in January, February, went to over 10 banks or 10 banks. And they all told me, no, uh, I didn't have enough experience or the right experience. And I was like, guys, I, I got an MBA. I got an engineering license. Like, I got all these things. What do you mean? And they're like, mm-hmm. well, you haven't signed a loan. And that's what experience means for a bank is you sign a loan and they can see the financials that goes with the loan you sign. Uh, so we actually closed that deal that I was trying to buy in January, February in November. Uh, but it was with a different configuration and kind of a whole team approach. And again, I'm talking to Jerome Myers. You can check out his website at www.myersmethods.com. Um, now let's talk about your first deal. What's a JV deal, right? Yep. All the deals have been JVs. Okay. So when you JV, it's it's like everyone contributed something to that transaction, money, skill sets, times. Um, when you have too many cooks in the kitchen, it tends to go wrong and becomes like a nightmare. Um, what were some things that you did wrong when it comes to dealing with your partners? I think the biggest thing that I did wrong was not vet values and make sure that I knew who I was partnering with before I got in the deal. I remember specifically that we didn't have uh, the asset management contract, general contractor contract, and property management contract signed before we were ready to go to close. And my partners were ready to close and frustrated because I didn't want to close without having those things agreed upon and signed. And the a small group of the you know partnership wanted to just put their additional equity in and not have me in the deal anymore because I wasn't moving with the flow. I wasn't going along to get along. So how did it, um, how did that deal, uh, end up turning out for you? The deal is good. I mean, at the highest level, we bought that property with average rents of 695 and we're now renting that property at 1195. So phenomenal, you know, bump in rents, a lot of twists and turns along the way. You know, we didn't get permits before we started the construction process and that hurt us in the end, created a lot of delays in time. Uh, we thought we were going to turn the property uh, or turn the ten- tenants on when leases expired. But instead, mm-hmm. we ended up evicting folks and going to 0% occupancy and then just doing all the construction at one time while we wrote checks for the interest payments on the loan. Um, you know, there were there were a ton of things that didn't go to plan, but, you know, there's once you get into the deal, you have to finish, right? And so we got through the deal and we got premiums that we didn't expect. When we went into the deal, we thought we were only going to be able to get eight ninety five, maybe nine fifty in rent. Mm-hmm. Getting that additional bump is really, really nice. And so that deal you still have right now, do you are you still partner with uh with those guys that you JV with on your new deals? 
Yeah, so we still have that deal, but no, that was the first and only partnership with them. Uh, once I got my experience, I went and talked to people that I went to high school with. And I mean, just about everybody that's in deals with me now outside of that partnership, I've known for over 10 years. Many of the people are, you know, high school teammates from uh, football. Okay, got it. And in the intake form, I saw that you said you like the syndication model, uh, model more now. Can you explain why and what is it that you like more? Uh, I'm, I mistyped if I said that. I am. Okay. I'm in favor of joint ventures over syndications. I, oh, okay. I absolutely believe that you know, the way to do this and, you know, part of, part of the story, right? Like my dad being a stay or a soldier is we didn't have business owners and high net worth individuals coming over for dinner. We didn't talk about entrepreneurship around the dinner table. And so for me, I want to open a door for other folks who grew up like me, right? That don't, didn't even know that you could buy an apartment building. Like the best way for me to do that is through joint venture. And you know, you get into the deal, you get your experience box checked, you can go do your own deal or you can stay in the Myers Methods community and keep doing deals with, you know, people that we think have like values. Uh, with the syndication, it's become, when the way I look at it, it's pretty cold, right? You get somebody that you have a conversation with, maybe two, they come in through your website, they wire money into your deal and they don't have a voice. I believe that, you know, you should partner, you should get the experience of being a business owner. You should have a voice and be able to vote. And if you have ambitions of being an operator, you know, we want to help people get that box checked. It's always interesting when I hear people say, hey, yeah, I, I want to be an operator, but, you know, I'm a passive invest for the next five years in this deal with just about all the capital that I have to do deals. It's like, you're not going to get the experience you need in order to be an operator, at least not on your own by doing that. And a lot of people don't really understand that when they become passive investors. And so, you know, I just want to be the voice that makes sure people are making decisions with all the facts in front of them and to give them opportunity to go directly to that uh, joint venture route and get the experience done if that's what they want to do, because it doesn't, you're, somebody's going to be really frustrated if they put their money in a deal that's locked up for a number of years and all the experience that they get is the reporting from the operator. So talk to me about someone who is new and maybe potentially want to join your coaching one-on-one coaching program. If they were to JV with someone in your community, the Myers Methods community, but they're brand new. They, they have no experience. So what can I contribute to the team, to, you know, as a JV? I think the biggest thing that folks need to do is go get educated, right? So you bring the deal. That's where your real value contribution is. So you get knowledge so that you can evaluate whether you have a lead or a deal. Once you have a deal, you want to bring that back to the pack and everybody gets to eat, right? I mean, that's, that's the name of the game. The more people that are out hunting and looking for deals, the better off the community is because there's more opportunities to find a deal. Um, and so I think that's one of the things. I think the other thing is once you have that knowledge, you know, you can go out in the space and find other people who have capital and maybe you come into a deal and help with investor relations or you come into a deal 
um, and help with the operations and get that experience. There's, you know, administrative tasks that happen in every deal, um, helping with due diligence. Like if you're engaged and involved along the way, you pick up all these tidbits that allow you to set up um, your business in a way where you don't have to make the same mistakes other people in the community have made. And what kind of financial qualification are you looking for for them to join? Uh, because if they're in a, a JV deal, they, they have to kind of be a part of your, uh, they have to sign on the loan as well. So the bank will, will vet them and qualify them. Yeah, I mean, the this isn't a, you know, you got $5,000 in the bank, you want to participate in this. No, I, I think you need to have some means and they have to be outside of your retirement account. Um, and so it it changes deal by deal. And the fact of the matter is, I mean, it doesn't have to be their money, right? There are people who have parents or relatives or even friends who would get excited about them. They have a track record of success and hard work. And they will be willing to back them and support them in the endeavor. And so, you know, the money piece isn't all that important. But what I can say is that, you know, multifamily investing is a capital intensive business. And the more capital that you have available, the more choices you have. You know, if you've only got a few thousand dollars and you want to pull that with some other friends and create an LLC and you guys have this single purpose entity that you have, and you're going to go out and do business, you guys can do that. Like as long as everybody's an active participant in the deal, you know, you joint venture and, or you have a joint venture and, you know, you, you can get a deal done and, you know, maybe somebody doesn't go do a half a million dollar deal. Maybe they do a $180,000 deal because that's what resources they have available. And so the signing of the loan, depending on the bank, it really just depends on a bank. If you have over 20% ownership, they typically require you to sign. Um, but, you know, somebody else can sign even if they don't own that much, if they want to go through the process and get the experience box check. Okay. Can you share some some tips in, like you talk about your first partners, um, you didn't vet them right. Can you share some tips on how to vet your partners going into a JV? I think the most important thing you can do is make sure that your values are aligned and, you know, whatever's most important for you, those things need to be important for your partners. I think the next thing you need to do is see them in a stressful situation and see how they react and respond. You know, do they take responsibility or do they blame everybody else? And if they blame everybody else, guess what happens if something goes wrong in your deal? They're going to blame everybody else. Right. So, you know, you want to see what happens when they're in under duress and in a stressful situation. And I think probably the final thing you want to do is just see what happens when work presents itself to the group and if they're ready to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty. Uh, one of my favorite images is the boat where there's four guys in a boat and there's a hole in one end and guys on the opposite end of the boat are pointing and saying, I'm sure I'm glad that that hole isn't in our end of the boat. If you've got people in your deal like that, then it's every man for himself. And that just does, long range, it doesn't work. Um, you really want to have people who are going to grab a bucket to get uh, the water out the boat. And everybody's got to be doing that because the boat sinks and you've basically got dead weight if you've got somebody that's just kind of looking and pointing. 
And, you know, for me, that's not what I want. And if I go all the way back to high school, right, it's the same people that you want on your team in general. If somebody's just there to have a jersey so that they can participate in the pep rally, you probably don't want them in the game with you when things are on the line. But that guy that's willing to go the extra mile, you know, they don't miss practice. They don't miss workouts. They're there for everything. And, you know, if, you know, it's raining, they're not scared to get wet. Like those are the type of folks that you want in your deal with you, because once you're in, you're in and you've got to do whatever it takes to get through the deal so that you can exit successfully. Okay. Um, One of the questions I have with that is um, I'm usually the person that would plan for the worst and hope for the best. So what are things that you can put in place to prevent people not pulling their weight? Let's say you vet them already, but what can I put in place, you know, just in case? I think the most important thing is the operating agreement. And the operating agreement is written from a place of everything goes wrong. And so how do you vote people out the deal? How do you value the shares of what they own when people are forced out, if they're forced out. And I I think having all those things agreed upon prior to entering the deal is kind of like having a prenup for your marriage, right? Having all of those things laid out um, is, is prudent as well as it makes the process very efficient. Um, now, with that said, if you ever have to pull the contract back out, you know, something went really wrong. If you're not having, you know, direct conversations along the way, if you're not explaining or if you're not clear on expectations and some of the other things that go with those expectations, then you guys have managed the partnership poorly. And so I think that's probably the other thing, like having clear, concise communication between the different partners. You know, everybody deserves dignity. Nobody needs to be embarrassed. But at the same time, in the same breath, you need to be able to say how you feel and what you think directly to the people and make sure that they are aware of where they are in you know your thought process. Let's talk about your coaching program a little bit. Can, can you share who are your ideal clients? Yeah, I think the ideal client is somebody that's in corporate America. They've been making over six figures for two or three years, and they know that they want a different path. They want to exit the matrix. And so what we look for is people who have similar values to what we have. Probably the biggest one is it's not just about profit, but it's also about improving the community. And then from there, you know, we want somebody that has an analytical background and that allows them to grasp the math. What I found is engineers are really prevalent in this building or in this business. And it's because they're able to do the analysis on the deals. Um, From there, I think the other thing that we're probably our most successful coaching students have is this entrepreneurial bug. And so they were probably the guys or gals that were selling stuff in high school, right? They go get Mm -hmm. candy and sell it. Um, They've dibbled and dabbled. Maybe they sold t-shirts or something else along the way, but They've had some inkling or some venture into business, but haven't made the full jump. And then, you know, they have a an, a bigger why. It's not just I want to make money, but there's something else that's pushing them to a new place. Maybe it's I want time freedom or I've decided that 
uh, I've went to too many places and saw that residents were being mistreated. You know, they've got something that's compelling that's pushing them to want to do something different. Uh, one of the things that we talked about early on was, you know, a thousand doors and a hundred people. I think 70 to 80 percent of the workforce is just doing work that is unfulfilling, but it pays well. And I've got this belief that if you can decouple your time for money and you can spend your time working on things you're most passionate about without worrying about what those things pay, mm-hmm. um, will improve the world leaps and bounds compared to what we're seeing to done today. So how can someone get started uh, in your program? Uh, so the final step is a one-on-one call with me where I evaluate whether or not we're comfortable working with them. Uh, if they jump over to MyersMethods.com and get the free four-step guide that explains our approach, it'll give them opportunity to learn how we see the space. They'll also get the opportunity to listen to a 15-minute interview where we just dive deep on the concepts covered in the guide. And then from there, there'll be opportunity to um, talk through you know, a series of emails and a bunch of other communications, some interviews that I've done for other folks. So they can get to know me as a person. And then from there, and the, if they want to dive even deeper, then we can start having some conversations and some interviews. And, you know, they'll talk to me, they'll talk to James, and we'll have a, we'll make a decision on whether or not they're the right person to move forward or not. So they have to apply and you have to see whether or not you want to let this person into your program, into your pack. Yeah, V. I mean, the reality of the situation is we're protecting the pack, right? There's a very small group of people that we feel comfortable bringing into our space. Uh, You know, a lot of the other programs will take money from anybody that has a pulse. And that for us isn't right. If somebody's not in a financial position where it makes sense for them to do it, then we tell we tell them, hey, this isn't right for you right now. And we've got some other opportunities or ways that people can figure out how to earn more money to grow their income. Because I mean, part of the package with somebody coming in is you got a W-2 and the banks really like W-2s and the bigger the W-2, the number on the W-2, the -hmm. better position they are to grab deals. And so, you know, we really want to make sure that somebody who comes into the program is ready, willing, and able to execute. We don't want people, you know, I, I get these horror stories where people pay thirty dollars or $40,000 to learn how to do this stuff. And then they come back to me and they're like, hey, I still haven't done a deal. I'm frustrated. I'm struggling. I really want to get this done. I've already made this huge investment. And, you know, we just end up scratching our head a lot of the times because basically they took all their money from their first deal and put it in education. And I just don't believe that that's the right way to get things done. I I do think people can make a ton of money. And I do believe that um, if you do it right, you can become wealthy and retire early. But, you know, I don't think that because somebody said at one point that less than 20 percent of people actually make it through the education programs and get to a deal that just when you're putting that much money at risk. It just seems like a really low conversion percentage. And so what we want to do is work with people that are in the right space in life and in the right financial position and all the other boxes that we check so that our conversion ratio is high and people are really satisfied and excited about being in the pack. Um, Do you want to talk about the price point? 
I mean, the price point varies depending on what we're doing, right? We, we've got different options for different people, um, and it depends on what they actually need, too. Okay. Um, you know, what I can tell a person, you know, just at the highest level is for, you know, less than $15,000, you can do your first deal. We don't share pricing in general, but I mean, $15,000 is more than what a person will pay to do their first deal. And, and I mean, it's it's less than a lot of the programs out there. Way less. <laughs> but that's intentional. I, I don't, you know, it's hard for me to condemn those folks and then go do the same thing they're doing. But the fact of the matter is, you know, no, I mean, you can you can do your first deal for way less than that. And I think it'll make a ton of sense. Now, we're in the middle of COVID-19. Um, can you tell me what are you doing or what are you going to going to implement in your the way you work on your future deals? What are you going to put in place? I don't. Uh, it's probably naive, but I don't think COVID really changes anything. At the maybe the deepest level, we increased our reserves a little bit. But I mean, I don't think you can plan for a pandemic. I, I think trying to underwrite uh, for a pandemic is just going to kill every deal that you try to do. And so for us, we're, we're going to keep our occupancy where it is um, when we're underwriting and we're, our break-even points, our break-even point. Like, I, I don't I don't really know what COVID means from an operational standpoint. Um, and so I, I don't have any big process changes from our perspective. So you haven't um, seen any changes in your um, residents' mentality in terms of paying because you know, with part of the CARE Act allowed them to kind of stop paying for 120 days uh, and not get an eviction if that's if they're in hardship, basically. And then after that, you have um, or they have 30 days uh, after that to pay. So if you want to post a notice to eviction, you have to give them 30 days. Yeah. So there's some fine print in the CARE Act that I think a lot of people aren't reading. Um and there's, I guess, some protected classes, like people who get government subsidies and some other stuff. Uh, our properties aren't Fannie and Freddie loans. And so I don't know that those same protections are extended to the residents at our properties. What I do know is that, you know, we're going to be compassionate. If somebody lost their employment because of COVID, then we just ask that they provide that documentation to us. They also provide to us that they apply for unemployment. And that they've done their tax returns either in 2008 or, or 2018 or 2019 so they can get their stimulus checks. And if they've done those things, then we're more than happy to work with them. But if folks have not done those things, then they are not doing their part in this process of us all being in it together. And so when it comes time for the courts to open back up and start taking eviction cases, we're going to do that. And, you know, we've got two people that I know of in our portfolio who are trying to take advantage of the situation. These folks have, they were behind and they were on slate to get evicted prior to all of the stay at home orders and the financial impacts related to the economy. Mm -hmm. And they want to blame COVID for their situation that existed pre-COVID. And so, you know, folks like that, um, we plan to put judgments on their accounts and we are not 
We are not excited about people taking advantage of the situation. We don't think that's right. We want everybody to do all that they can uh, because, I mean, we have to do all that we can as owners. Definitely. Yeah. Um, well, let's transition into the last piece of the show here. Um, just have a few questions left for you. What's one habit that you have that contribute to 80% of your success this far? Extraordinary effort. Uh, I was <laughs> keep talking about football. It's amazing. I haven't really talked about it in any of the other conversations I've had <laughs> with, uh, with football. I, you know, I got recruited out of high school and one of the coaches said, Jerome, you've got this uncanny level of effort that I don't see very often. And it was like, play through the whistle. Even if it doesn't seem like I've got a chance to make the play, I'm running to the ball anyway. Like whatever was going on, I was doing all that I could to be involved. And I, I live that out in everyday life, right? I, I play till the whistle. I, I play through the whistle. And so, you know, if it just seems like everything's going to fall apart and there's no way that it can happen, I'm still going to be there until the clock runs out. And somebody else has to tell me, hey, uh, this is not going to happen. This is over. It's done. But I, I don't give up. I don't quit. And, you know, that that has paid off and showed me so many different opportunities that I can't even begin to count. Um, and it's, you know, one of the th reasons why people partner with me on deals. They know that I'm going to do everything that I can in order to make the deal work. And, you know, if it doesn't work or if we fail or if we have a struggle, it won't be from a lack of effort. It will be either extenuating circumstances such as COVID. It will be because, um, you know, we tried to plan for something or do something and one of our assumptions was wrong and we just couldn't. We didn't figure it out before we got into the situation. You know, that, I think that's the other piece of it, right? Why I consume so much content is I don't want to be wrong because I didn't know. And, you know, I, and if I am wrong, I want to be able to correct it prior to it adversely impacting either our residents or the people that are partners in the deal. And so, you know, that, but that extraordinary effort, that ability to go to the end, regardless of what the scoreboard says is, you know, my superpower. Awesome. Now, Jerome, what's the what's your biggest challenge right now? I haven't spent any time building infrastructure to raise capital to do deals. And so my entire focus has been on being a great operator and establishing a strong track record of performance and being as knowledgeable as I can in the space. And so as we scale and do bigger deals, uh, we need more people in our community that uh, have access to means, you know, accredited investors or there's a lot of them out there. But if you're not um, actively cultivating relationships with them, then it's hard to get them to partner with you on a deal. And so, you know, that is the next frontier for us is growing relationships and going to scale. And so that's really what 2020 is for us. It's sharing our story with people all over the country with the hope that they reach out and want to learn more and um, engage in the community. And that way, when we have deals come up and, you know, we've, we've got $40 million worth of deals in the pipeline right now. And so, you know, that turns into a pretty big raise. I mean, eight, 10, $15 million worth of a raise. Um, you know, we, we need to have people that have pockets that can and balance sheets that can support those types of projects. 
a wonderful show, man. Thank you so much for your time, Jerome. You've been marvelous guest. Um, just one last question uh, for you before I let you go. What is your most favorite mindset or success quote? <laughs> so I'm, I'm a matrix guy, right? I, I love the matrix and, you know, what, when, when Morpheus offers Neo the red or the blue pill and tells him that he's only offering the truth is, is it's life changing. Right. And that's my desire. My desire is to be the Morpheus of everybody that wants to exit the matrix. I'm going to tell you the truth before you take the pill. And if you take the pill, there's no turning back because once you exit, you can't go back. And that was when I dropped out of corporate America, there was no going back. It didn't matter how bad it got. You know, people were calling, trying to get me to go here or go there. And I was out and I saw that there was a totally different life and there was a totally different way of living. And regardless of how uncomfortable it gets or how stressful it becomes, it, there just isn't any going back. And so, you know, will you take red or blue is my quote. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Jerome. Thanks for having me, V. I appreciate the opportunity to share with your listeners. That's the end of the show. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a five-stars rating and review on iTunes for the Real Estate Lab podcast. Until next time, have a prolific week.